Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. In previous chapters, he explained that the reason why the Torah uses the analogy of speech, that God creates the world through speech, because just like when we speak, where do these words come from? Where do these letters come from? They come from within you. But if you go beyond words, if you go to the raw experience, to the raw emotion or the raw concept, or you go to the soul, in this, which is the source of the words, there, there are no words. The raw experience, you don't love in English or in French or in Russian. It's beyond words. Raw comprehension, raw concepts are beyond words. Raw experience. So if you go beyond the whole uh, words and letters, if you go back to the root, the source of the words and letters, the words and letters are completely unified within their source. You can't separate them from the source. As a matter of fact, you don't even feel their existence. You don't even feel that they exist. It's not like a body to a soul. A body to a soul, even though the body is also unselfconscious, it's a sign of health, you don't feel yourself. It's the first sign of illness when a person feels himself. The soul, the body is completely unified with the soul, but nevertheless there's a body and there's a soul. But when you, the words and letters, the words and letters, when you go back to the source of the words and letters, the words and letters are unified within their source. All there is, you don't even feel its existence. The person himself doesn't even feel that the words are there. The words are there. Where do they come from? They don't come from thin air. When you come up with words to explain, to communicate an idea, an emotion, a concept, an experience, these words come from within you. You are the source of these words. Yet, before you thought about this idea, before you you um, entertain this idea in your thoughts and words and letters and before you communicated and verbally spoke these words, these words were within you, but these words were in a state of non-being and non-existence. The words were totally unified within the source. All you feel is the source. What do you don't, mean? Huh? The, source. What do you the source means the person himself, yeah. the emotion, the, the intellect, the soul. You don't even know you have words. You can't even find the words. The words are there, but you can't even find them. They're not even there. The body, the body is here. The body is not... Where's the body? I know where the body is. Matter of fact, the mind-body connection, the body impacts the soul. Not only does the soul impact the body, the body impacts the soul. If your body hurts, your soul can't think. If your body is in pain or your body is, is cold or uncomfortable, it affects your soul, it affects your mind. So although the body is completely nullified before the soul, you can't say the body is not there, the body doesn't exist. The body exists. And it's interactive. The soul and the body interact with each other, are inseparable, are unified, but nevertheless, they interact on each other and they impact each other. The mind-body connection. But the words and the letters, when the words and the letters, before they emerge in your thoughts, before you have words, before you have letters, they're there, but you don't even feel they exist. They're completely unified with their source. All there is is the source. All you feel, all you sense is the pure experience, or the pure emotion. Or the raw intellect, the raw concept. There are no words, there are no letters. The communist scientist is able to communicate with his, with his capitalist counterpart because they're, they're talking pure theory. It's not about language, social language, words, letters. It's pure, the pure, the raw 
raw mind, the raw concept, the raw intellect. So the words and letters are there, but you can't, you can't find them. The words and letters are completely unified within the, their source. They're one within the source. So the entire world, the Torah is telling us that the world is created through words and letters. The entire world consists of words and letters. But if you get beyond the words and letters, if you get to a place beyond words, it's very rare for us. Most people go through their entire life and never, never get beyond the world on a conscious level, never get beyond the world of words and letters. Our whole conscious frame of reference, our whole way of thinking is based on words and concepts and letters. It's very rare for us to get to that inner place, to experience the raw soul beyond words and letters. It takes deep meditation, deep to really get to that place. Most people don't get to that place or don't even know how to get to that place. To get to a place in the soul before, before there are words and letters, before the words and letters are formed. The source of the words and letters. When the words and letters are completely unified within their source, all, they, all that you can feel and sense and experience is the pure, raw experience, the raw soul, without any words and letters. It's a very powerful experience. Someone is able to get beyond words and letters and to really touch the soul, experience the soul, the raw experience. Because our experience is all based on words and thoughts and, kind of, and language and, and, and that's already superficial and external. We never get to experience a pure, raw soul experience. It's very rare. But there is, if you're able to get beyond the words and letters... There, all you experience, you're able to experience this raw soul experience. How to get beyond the words? Oh, how do you get beyond the words? So it's very, it's very difficult for us because we do live, consciously we live in the world of words. That's our whole world. Words, concepts, words. That's our whole entire world. Past, present, future, concepts, numbers. That, that's our world. That's our whole frame of reference. <clears throat> It's very almost. It's it's like almost touching the infinite. It's like touching something that's beyond our experience, beyond our senses, beyond our experience. It's very difficult for us to actually experience it. Are children before they can talk in touch with that? Yes, children are unselfconscious. That's why children are so loving, are so lovable. We all love children. Not even if they're not our own children. Children are just lovable because children are unselfconscious. And that is our raw self that always remains that child within us. <laughs> then we get layer upon layer of consciousness, sophistication, self-awareness. But the truth is, the more self-aware we are, the more conscious we are, the more egotistical, the, the more sophisticated and the, the more polished we are, the more alienated we are from our real self, our core, natural, unself-conscious self. And that's why the... Uh, Children are pure and innocent. And we all have that place within us, deep down inside. That's why the Baal Shem Tov loved the simple Jew. Because the simple Jew is unselfconscious, just like the child. The simple Jew doesn't have that veneer, that sophistication, that external, that covers up and alienates us from our true, raw self-experience. The simple Jew is, is also unselfconscious. Whatever he does is pure. It's not, it's not, it's not premeditated. It's just natural. It's, it's, it's real. And it takes a tremendous effort 
for the sophisticated and intelligent, for the great scholar and Kabbalist, it takes a great effort to be able to reach that purity and that innocence that the simple Jew has. That's why Moses was the most humble Jew that ever lived. Moses was jealous. Moshe Rabbeinu was jealous of the simple Jew. Moshe was jealous of that innocence, of that purity, of that unselfconsciousness of the simple Jew. The burning bush, the bush that's never consumed, that unselfconscious, that's, that's a touch of the infinite, which you find within children and you find in the simple truth, simple person. The simplicity of the Bashamta said the simplicity of the simple person touches the simplicity of God Himself, the essence of God. But then we come up with words and we start thinking and we start, and that's our whole world. The difference is when the Torah uses the analogy of speech in relationship to God, when we say that God speaks, He explained in the previous chapter, we learned in the previous week, it doesn't mean when we speak, then our words have a life of their own. And it, it's a good cover-up. The words cover up and conceal on the inner and distances us and alienates us from that inner experience. But within God, it's not so. When God speaks, God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, and the same is true, my speech is not like your speech. When God speaks, God speaks, there's no alienation, there's no distance, there's no external, because God is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. So God's speech, so to speak, never left him. Even after God speaks, it's like just like exactly like before he speaks. That the speech, God's speech, remains totally unified within God. So therefore, the speech itself never really leaves God, and the speech itself remains in a state, in a total state of unity. In a total state of being one, one with God, there's nothing but God. In a state of, of unselfconsciousness. The difference is that we sense ourselves. When God creates us, because there's no space empty of God. So who is God going to speak to? He has nobody to speak to. It's like God speaking to himself. But when God speaks, he creates an entity, he creates something to speak to. We are created through God's speech. That's the divine energy with which God creates us, conscious beings, independent entities that sense ourselves as being independent. While the truth is that we're not independent. Not only aren't we not independent, we're not even dependent entities. We're not even like a body to a soul. We are like the words and the letters that are unified within their source. And you can't even find the words and letters. The words and letters don't even feel themselves. So the truth is, even after we're created and we sense our egos and we sense our sense of self and we sense ourselves disconnected from God, disconnected from our source, but the truth is, from God's point of view, nothing changed. The words and letters with which God creates us are totally unified within their source. So all there is really is God. That pure, raw experience, that unselfconsciousness. There is not no entity. There is nothing but God. It's only that from our perspective, we sense our sense of self, our sense of entity. Because from God's perspective, He says it's like, it's like the turtle. The shell of the turtle grows together with the turtle. It's part of the turtle. It's not like when we wear clothes. We wear clothes, clothes is external to us, so it's a cover-up. But God's ability to speak and to hide and to conceal is also comes from within God. So it's like God covering up in Himself. He can't hide, hide yourself. He can't cover up yourself. 
Therefore, from God's point of view, nothing changed. He remains alone before He created the world. And even after He speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. The words and letters never left God. So they still have that pristine, uh, that pristine level of being totally nullified, unified, unself-conscious. Totally unified within God. So from God's point of view, you can't even find the words and letters. All you can find is God. When God sees the table, and sees you and I, and He sees the world, He sees Himself. There's nothing else. Just like He was alone before He created the world, there was nothing else. Nothing changed, even after He speaks. And He revealed the world, and He brought the world into existence. Nothing changed. So the reason why the Torah uses the analogy of speech, the only comparison you have between God's speech and our speech is, that when you speak, you reveal. When you communicate, you reveal. Before you speak, no one knows what's going on in your mind, in your heart. When you speak, you reveal what's going on inside of you. So too, when God speaks, God reveals. He reveals His ability to create. So He he creates us, and He brings us into actuality, into existence. But that's where the analogy ends. The other aspect of speech, where speech is a cover-up, and speech is an alienation, and a cover-up, and a distancing from our soul, and the more we speak, and the more verbose we are, and the more verbal we are, the more, the more we get away from the soul. The further we get away from the soul, the more verbal, the less experience, illumination, soul. The greater the cover. But in God's case, it's not so. When God speaks, there's no cover-up. There's no alienation. There's no distancing. The speech remains totally bound and unified within the source Just like when we speak, before we speak, where are those words and letters with which we speak? Where were those words before we speak? They were there. But they were totally unified within us. And all you have is the raw experience. It's only later on that a person thinks and and these words emerge and surface as independent words. When God speaks, even after He speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. The words never leave God. And they still maintain, retain that purity. All there is is God. So why he speaks? His speech is his ability to, to create. That's God's ability to create. When we speak, we speak to someone outside of us. When God speaks, he creates worlds, entities, angels, beings that sense themselves as being independent or dependent. So when God speaks, that's God's ability to create. That's God's creative ability. That's the idea of God's speech. I realize this is... I'm trying to conceptualize something infinite with a finite mind. But what does God need to create for if all he sees is himself? How can he get anything out of what he created? Excellent question. We actually discussed this at great length in Shari Yichud Ve'emuna, the gateway of unity, the second part of Tanya, which we already concluded in chapter 7. So you can always go to lessonsontanya.com and take a look or listen, but the, in the, just very briefly, it's a good question. I mean, if there's nobody to speak to, and what's the point of, 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 of creating? And the answer is that we don't know, there is no logical reason, because there is no logical argument. It makes no sense. Because there's nothing outside of God. There's nothing but God. Even, even after God speaks, it's just like before He spoke. So there's nothing. He was alone before He created the world. And he's alone after He creates the world. 
So what's the point? What's the purpose? The answer is, there's no logical reason. But we know that God wanted, for whatever reason, we don't understand why, but God wanted, He wanted to be a king. He wanted to have a relationship. He wanted to get married. Now, even if you're God and you're perfect, you can't marry yourself. <laughs> Marriage, by definition, is you forget the moment you forget about yourself. Someone else has to say, I do. Just like a king. Unless you're a dictator and you impose, upon, you impose yourself upon your people, your people have to willingly want to accept you. If your people don't willingly accept you as their king, you're not a king. So it's a relationship. It's like in business. It's your customer who makes you successful. It's not you don't make yourself successful. It's like, who's, who's the, the successful writer? It's his readers who make him successful. Who's the, the successful uh, 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 artist? It's the audience. So for whatever reason, God wanted to be able to see himself from an outsider's point of view. That's the whole key of communication. The whole power of communication is is to be able, when you get that feedback, why doesn't the artist and the musician sit at home and play music? Lock the door, close the windows, and sit at home and play music? No, he needs an audience. Why does he need an audience? The reason he needs an audience, he needs that feedback. He needs that affirmation. When you get that affirmation, that's so powerful, when you view yourself as you are seen by others, the way others see you, and others affirm, and, and they give you back that feedback, and you're able to see yourself Get into their mind. That's the whole key of communication. Stepping outside of yourself and getting in the other person's mind. Seeing how you are viewed from an outsider's perspective. That's, that's the thrill of communication. That's the thrill of a relationship. That's the thrill of marriage. When someone outside of you affirms you and says, I do. And I willingly accept. And I'm ready to marry. That's, that's a whole different... It's when the person receives and there's someone outside there receiving from you. And receiving and that the feedback that you get, the ability to be able to see yourself from a totally different perspective. Because everything else is all in self-expression. But the deepest thrill in a person's life is communication. When you get an outsider's perspective. When you are affirmed from an outsider. So that's what Hashem wanted, for whatever reason. He want, Hashem wanted to be affirmed, to see Himself the way we see Him. So He had to create an outsider who senses themselves being separate from God, and then when we willingly choose Hashem, and willingly, consciously and deliberately, willingly enter into a relationship with Hashem, then it, it, it's creative. It creates, it's very creative. It creates a dynamic. You create, it's, it's electrifying when you're able to see. You're able to see yourself from a whole different perspective. That, that's what Hashem wanted. But there's a philosophical problem. Because if Hashem has a want, He's no longer destroys part of his infinity, part of his omnipotence. On the contrary. Infinity is also a limitation. If you're saying that God is only limited to being infinite, that's the greatest limitation. God is Mm -hmm. truly omnipotent. And therefore he's not limited in any way. He's not even limited to being infinite. Therefore, he can express himself in a finite way. That's why we can speak of, that's why God emanates from within himself. We can speak of God's will, we can speak of God's wisdom, we can speak of God's love, we can speak of God's compassion, we can speak of God's strength, we can speak of God's royalty. 
These are all attributes. God is undefined. God is beyond any limitation. But that itself is a limitation. God is so undefined that he's not even limited to being undefined. But there's a temporal sense of this. It's like God decided to do this. That means there's an element of time involved. Well, we speak in our human language because that's the only language language we can speak of. But um, the truth is that for God, the will and wisdom is just a tool. Just like you know, just like action for us as a tool is external, so God also creates the will and, and, and emanates with him from within himself a will and emanates from within himself a wisdom. And he works through will and wisdom. You know, when you say that when you say in the says in the Torah, God gets angry. It's like a tool. For God it's like a tool. When we get angry at our emotion, it engages our soul, it captures our essence captures our soul. God is not limited to the fine, but God emanates from within himself, just like he creates everything else, he also creates and he emanates from within himself all these tools, but they emanate from within God, and therefore you can say that God is angry, God is jealous, or God is wise, or God is uh, wills. But that's a separate discussion. I don't want to get too, too carried away, too far off from the, from, from the subject matter. But God wanted to speak to communicate. That's the foundation of life. Communication, relationships. That's what life is all about. It's all about relationships. Our whole world is one big, it's all about relationships. Whether it's business, or whether it's the artist who needs an audience, or whether it's marriage, it's all built on relationship. Relationship touches the deepest part within us. That's why the Torah refers to man as medaber, as a speaker. Why? There are many names to men. In the Western dictionary, man is called rational animal. Isn't that a higher faculty within man, his ability to think and to imagine? Why does the Torah choose the minimal, the lowest distinction of man that he has the ability to speak and animals can't speak? We have even a higher ability. We have imagined the ability to reason and to imagine, which animals don't. Why does the Torah define us as speaker? And the answer is we're not talking about speech, per se. A parrot can also parrot speech. We're talking about communication. The need for communication is the deepest need within a person. Even deeper than, than your intellect. Intellect is a self-sufficient type of activity. The person who's intellectual is a loner. Wants to live, be isolated. Is the ivory tower thinker. Needs peace and quiet without any distractions in order to pursue his mind. The, the need to communicate comes from a much deeper place. It's the need to step outside of yourself and the need to be validated by someone outside of yourself. To discover, to stretch, the ability to stretch and to totally transcend your own limitation and to be able to touch someone else in their place, in their space, that's really the key. of that. That's what speech and communication is all about. So the entire world was created. That's what the Torah means. The world was created through God's speech. God wanted to communicate. He wanted to be a king. He wanted to be married. He wanted to have a relationship. So his speech, he created entities that are separate from God, whether it's angels or us, physical human beings. And when we deliberately and consciously, willingly choose to enter into a relationship with God and to coronate God, to crown God as king, as our king, as our sovereign, that gives God tremendous, infinite pleasure. 
So that's what God wanted. There should be a world, a dark world, a coarse world, a materialistic and egotistical world. And yet when a person is able to overcome his ego, when a person is able to rise above his ego, and a person is able to connect and to unite with God, and to unify the world with God. This is the whole purpose of creation. And how do we unify the world to God? The Jew is the connector. And how does the Jew connect the world with God and himself with God? Through Torah and mitzvot. This is the whole purpose of creation. There is no other purpose. This is what gives God pleasure, infinite pleasure, infinite delight. This is the whole purpose. That there's a world. And there are challenges in this world. And there's darkness. And there are tests. And God throws us curves from left field. And despite all of these tests, a Jew is able to overcome this darkness. A Jew is able to overcome these tests. And a Jew, out of the goodness of his heart, willingly and deliberately chooses to enter into a relationship with God and chooses to study God's Torah and chooses to fulfill his mitzvah and chooses to pray to God. This, by doing this, we fulfill the purpose the raison d'etre of the entire universe. Without this, the world has no meaning. Without this, the world ceases to exist. Because there's no point. There's no purpose. Like you asked earlier, inherently the world has no meaning, the world has no purpose, the world has no value. The world is absolutely insignificant. From God's point of view, being, existence, pursuing your own ego, pursuing your own, really means nothing. Because there is nothing but God. And the world is not even. It's not only that religion adds meaning to life. It's like icing on the cake. Without religion, life exists. But religion gives meaning to life, spice to life. It's like without religion, the world is like a body. But it's a, it's a corpse. The religion, you inject the body with soul, with flavor, with energy. With passion, with meaning, purpose. So we learned last week in the last chapter, the world is not even, that's the lower level of unity. The higher level of unity is that the world is not even like a body to the soul. It's like words and letters, which are completely united within this source. You can't even find the words and letters. The words and letters don't even sense themselves. They don't even sense their own existence. They're there, but they don't even sense their own existence. All that you experience is the raw experience. There is nothing else. The soul, there is nothing else. So in other words, without God, the world has no value. It's meaningless. It's nothing. And this is the whole purpose, which is how, why, and how a Jew has the strength. Where does a Jew have the strength for 3,800 years? Beginning with the very first Jew, Avram Ivri. Avram was called Avram Ivri because the whole world was on one side and he was on the other side. Where did one Jew? He had no parents. He had no, no siblings. All alone, the very first Jew, the pioneer, Abraham and Sarah, where do they have the inner strength to go against the entire world? 99.9% of the world is opposed to you. Everyone was hopelessly worshipping pagans and idols. Pagan worshippers, idol worshippers. Where did Abraham get the strength to stand up to the whole world? And to do what was politically incorrect. And every Jew, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah has to follow in their footsteps. We inherit that ability to be a nonconformist, to be a rebel. Where do we get the strength for 3,800 years to go against 99.9% of the world? 
Everyone has one set of values. Their idea what life is all about. And a Jew lives with a whole different set of values. For us, what is life all about? It's about Hashem. It's about Torah, mitzvot, Hashem, our relationship with Hashem, our marriage to God. This is reality to us. Everything else is just a means to an end. But to the rest of the world, they have a whole different set of values. Materialism is an end in itself. Where does the Jew get the strength to to stand up to the entire world? Because, and this is the foundation, this is what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. What is the Jewish soul? The Jewish soul is born with a faith, a Jewish faith. The Jewish faith is the faith is expressed twice every day. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Which means not only that there's one God, but there's one reality. There is no other reality. Because there is no being and there's no existence other than God. God is alone before He created the world. And even now, while He's creating, while He's speaking, and during creation, nothing else exists but God. There is no existence, period. All there is is God. Therefore, for a Jew, everything is permeated with God. There is nothing else. Everything else is, everything is just, all roads are leading to Jerusalem. Everything is permeated with godliness. This is Jewish faith. This is the core and essence of a Jew. And this is expressed in the Jew's way of life. A Jew connects every aspect of his life with godliness. Your life is not compartmentalized. You're not only Jewish on Yom Kippur or on a special day, when you're in the synagogue, wherever you are, whoever you are, you'll always connect. Your life is permeated with Hashem. With the reality and the awareness, there's nothing but God. Yet nevertheless, although this is the truth, and this is God's point of view, but nevertheless, the Torah does use the language of man. The Torah does use the analogy of speech. So we're going to learn in this chapter that in a certain sense, even the other second aspect of speech, where speech alienates us from our soul and speech covers up in our soul and removes us and distances us from our soul. Even that aspect of speech is also applicable to God's speech. Not from God's point of view, but from our point of view. That the world that God created through His speech, God did create a world that appears to us to be a world that is distant from God or alienated from God or disconnected from God or has a life of its own, is independent, is an end in itself. We don't sense godliness within the world. The truth is that even today, even now, even within every one of us, the truth is nothing changed. The truth is we are totally united within God and we are truly godly at our very core and essence. But we don't sense that truth. It appears to us through tzimtzum. God created the world through tzimtzum. God contracted himself and hid himself and concealed himself. And he concealed himself so well that his speech, his speech has the effect on us, the same effect that speech has in human speech. <coughs> Just like when the human being speaks. The words have a life of their own. The words leave the speaker the words cover up on the, on the origin of the speech, on the soul. The more verbal, the more verbose you are, the more distant and alienated you are from that rawness, from that unselfconscious self, and that purity, from that innocence, from that 
true source. And that's the way the world appears to us. The world does appear to be distant from God, alienated from God, coarse, materialistic, egotistical, self-centered, as an end in itself, where materialism is an end in itself. And we forget the inner meaning and the inner purpose that it's all about. That's what he's going to discuss in this chapter. Yes. Is our soul part of God? I mean, one in the same? Like you say, his speech now believes him. Is our soul in that category? Our soul is, is created by God. But the truth is, not only our soul, everything that's created by God truly never really left God. It's really all united. Everything is truly united in the absolute unity of God. From God's point of view, nothing changed. Like we discussed the other week. It's like when Einstein is teaching his students. And Einstein has to come up with uh, analogies and examples and illustrations to be able to communicate his brilliance to simple students who are not on his level. Now Einstein has to struggle to come up with these simple analogies that could convey and communicate his ideas. He has to come up with language that his students could relate to. If he's going to share his dazzling brilliance, it'll just destroy them, it'll just overwhelm them. They won't be able to begin to grasp what he's talking about. So in order for them to comprehend, to get some idea, some appreciation of what he's trying to communicate, he has, must communicate in very simple language. Now, the students, what do they perceive? What do they hear? They hear the story, the analogy, the illustration, the simile. They don't fully grasp the moral of the story, what's inside the story. The original dazzling concept, the way it exists in Einstein's mind. But it's, a one, it's like a one-way mirror. The concealment only works one way. We can't see. To us the story and the illustration conceals and covers up on what's inside. But from God's point of view, there is no cover-up. For Einstein, he sees within the parable, within the story, the silly story of the fox and the hens and the simple story that he's trying to explain to his little children, he sees the original, brilliant, dazzling insight that he has. There's no cover-up. Why? Because where did these analogies come from? From within Einstein. They come from within himself. You can't hide on yourself. You can't cover up on yourself. So therefore, there's no cover-up. He sees in these very limited analogies, he sees the entire concept in all its dazzling brilliance. So too, this entire world is like a one-way mirror. For us, it's a concealment. For us, we can't see God. We see the world. The world is fragmented. The world is independent. We see the world feels to be disconnected and alienated and distanced from God. It doesn't feel godly to us. You walk down Park Avenue, you don't sense godliness. It's not palpable. You sense ego, money, power, fame, but very precious little of godliness. But it's a one-way mirror. From God's point of view, from God's perspective, nothing changed. The same infinite light. God sees within this world, everything in this world is just a parable, just a simile, a parable to the infinite. So God sees within this world, He sees the infinite. There is no darkness, there is no hiding, there is no concealment, there is no cover that's from God's point of view. From our point of view, to us, the effect of God's speech is that the speech is a cover, is a distancing, is an alienation, is, has a life of its own. Okay, chapter 22, page 288. Yet the Torah employs human language, and in the Torah the word of God is actually called speech, like the speech of a human being which is characterized by separation from the speaker. 
indicating that, in some way at least, God's word is also separated from him. For in truth it is so, that God's word is separated from him, not indeed with respect to himself, but only with respect to the various creations, as will soon be explained. And the separation comes about by way of the descent and flow of the life force to the lower planes. This descent is accomplished through many powerful contractions, with each successive contraction increasingly veiling the divine life force. And these contractions are of various kinds, in order that many diverse creatures may be created through them. Thus, the diversity found in creation stems from the diverse contractions of the creative power. So, according to the contractions, according to the contractions, are the many different creatures that are created through them. We know the multiplicity of beings. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species, and, and each species itself has such variety and almost infinite variety. Uh, all of this is a result of the many different contractions, the words and letters with which God creates the world. Every word, every letter, and the different combination of the letters, as we learn in the Shari Yehud, is every letter shows in a different uh, channeling of a different energy, and then the different combinations of the letters, like mixing chemicals, different, different mixtures, you come up with different results. So too, you have, you have such a variety of being and existence this all comes from the contractions, from God's many words and letters and, and, and uh, multiple combinations of them. Continue. Indeed, so great and powerful are the contractions and the concealment of the supernal countenance, that is, the inner, deeper aspect of the divine life force is so heavily veiled, that even unclean things, and klipot and the sitra akhra, can come into being and be created. No amount of contractions could give rise to klipot, even at its lowest level, the divine life force would not ordinarily produce creations that deny God. It is the quality and intensity of the tzimtzumim rather than their numerousness that permits the klipot to come into being. So there's, there's quantitative tzimtzumim and then there's qualitative tzimtzumim. Quantitative tzimtzumim is, could lead to a distancing, but not a, not a cutting off, not a total severance. Because when a person speaks, you know that there's a speaker. There's someone who's speaking. So you know that there's a source. You don't deny that there's a source. You know that there's someone who's speaking. Someone, these words are coming from somewhere. So these level of tzimtzumim could create something that feels separate from God because when you speak, you have to speak to someone outside of you. So God's speech creates an entity that feels independent. But it's an entity that is being spoken to by God. It's an entity that appreciates that there is a speaker. So it acknowledges that there is a speaker. It acknowledges that there is a God. That's, still, that's not kalipa. That's not, that's not the opposite of holiness. There's still a, an acknowledgement of God. But how do, you, how do we come to a world of atheism? How do we arrive at a world of atheism that totally denies God? A, word of, a world of idolatry that totally denies God? Or atheism totally denies the existence of God. Even in the human form, in the lowest form of speech, when speech does distance us and alienates us from our soul, but nevertheless there's some connection, there's at least a tenuous connection between the words and the speaker. How can you create a world where there's no connection? You sever any connection? As if the world is an end in itself. There's no source. There's no cause. There's no original cause. The world just is. God is totally not part of the equation. I'm not for God and I'm not against God. He's simply not part of the equation. He's not part of the, of the vocabulary. 
Where do you, how do you come? So he says, this is the qualitative tzimtzum. The tzimtzumim are so intense and so powerful that they create a severed reality, which is totally severed from its source. So much so that God is so concealed. God conceals himself so much that he's able to create a reality that doesn't even acknowledge that there is a source. Which is really the ultimate creative act of God. Only God is the ultimate proof that there is a God. Only God can create a world that denies that there's even a source. You see a book, you know, you know there's an author. You see a business, you know there's someone who built up that business. You see a country, you know there's a founder. You see a painting, you know that there's an artist. But to deny, to look at this world, this infinitely complex world, to have students in universities study the infinite complex body, and yet to deny that there is a God, where God is not even part of the equation, not even part of the vocabulary, I'm not even denying it. He simply doesn't exist. All that exists is me, myself, and I. This is astonishing. This is inexplicable. It's illogical. It makes no sense. How can an intelligent person... If someone told you that Shakespeare was written by a monkey that sat at a typewriter, you'd be insulted. So how can an intelligent person look at this world, which is infinitely more complex than Shakespeare? If someone told you that some construction manager put together all the material that went into the Empire State Building, and he brought it all together, and then there was a big explosion, and before you knew it, it all came together... It was perfect. You had a building with elevators and with lights and with switches. It all just came together. I mean, it, it, it's insulting. And that's the Empire State. The human body is a billion times more complex than the Empire State. And to believe that all of this just happened, there was a big bang, it just happened, just got together. I mean, it, it's, it's insulting to the intelligence of a five-year-old child. So how could anyone who, who dignified such nonsense. How could anyone who has any self-respect, who prizes and treasures his mind and his intellectual capacities, and yet this is the accepted wisdom today? As a matter of fact, anyone who takes God seriously is, is some old-fashioned, uh, is, is ridiculed. Get with the times. What God? When God? I'm a self-made man. God does It's not even part of the equation. This is the ultimate astonishment. This is the ultimate proof that there's a God. Only God can create such a world. <laughs> a world which is so severed, so disconnected, that even while God is creating you, this very moment that God is creating you, with His words and His speech, which are completely unified within God and never even left God. So the truth is that you absolutely, while you're denying God, while you're in a state of atheism, while you're behaving as if God doesn't exist, you are completely unified within God. And yet, on a conscious level, you don't acknowledge God. You don't even deny Him. He simply is not part of the equation. Only God has the ability to create something like that. That's the tzimtzum, the ultimate tzimtzum. The intensity of the tzimtzum, the qualitative tzimtzum, where God is so concealed that while He's creating you, each and every moment, you can't exist a moment with that. And you're nothing other than, than His divine energy. And this divine energy is totally unified within God Himself. And yet, you feel totally egotistical, 
totally coarse, egotistical, independent, totally disconnected. There is no source. There's no God, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, no justification. I don't even need a reason why I'm here. There's no meaning, there's no purpose to life. Just live and enjoy life, enjoy for the moment, live for the moment. Nothing matters, there's no past, there's no future. Just enjoy the moment and that's all that matters. This is, it's astonishing. It's mind-boggling. It's inexplicable, it makes no sense. But only God has the power to create such an entity. This is the symptom of God. God's ability to totally hide, to play hide-and-seek. He creates us, and yet He, play, he, plays, he plays with us. It's called the game of hide-and-seek. You know, the children's game, hide-and-seek. It's like the story with the uh, Rabbi Dov Ber had one child, one son, the Malach. And one day he was sitting in the study, and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Avram, the angel, he's called Rabbi Avram, the Malach, he was so spiritual, he comes running into the study in tears. His father sits him on his lap. He says, my son, why are you crying? He says, I was playing with my friend the game of hide-and-seek. And I hid so well that no one found me. So his father says, well, isn't that the whole point of the game? So the son says, yes. But they stopped looking for me. And he burst out crying. <laughs> when Rabbi Dovber heard this, he started crying. He says, this is what my master and teacher, the founder of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Saul Bar Shem Tov, said, he explained, it says in the verse, V'anoichi haster, aster Hashem says, I will hide, I will hide my face on that day. That exile is called, Hashem is hiding his face. The question, why does the Torah say twice, haster, aster? He says, because the exile, it's one thing when God hides. But you know that he's hiding. And you know that it's a game of hiding. And you're looking, and you're seeking, and you're searching. And then he sends out hints, because he wants you to find them. It's just a game. He wants you to be found. He wants to be found. But he wants you to find them. He wants you to prove your wisdom. To prove how wise you are. Don't take things at face value. That he, that he is hiding because he doesn't love you anymore. As the Goyim has been taunting the Jews, oh, God has unchosen you. He kicked you out of Israel, destroyed your temple. Don't you get the hint? He doesn't love you anymore. But no, that a Jew is wise enough not to take things at face value, not to take the exile at face value. No, that God is hiding because he wants us, he's playing hide and seek with us. He wants us to look for him. He wants us to seek him. And the moment we seek him out, he'll come out of hiding and we'll be reunited and with a deeper love than ever before and he'll rebuild the temple and he's going to bring Mashiach. But that's one level of hiding. But then there's a deeper level of hiding. Where the fact that he's hiding is also hidden. You don't even know that he's hiding. You stop looking. You stop yearning. You don't feel unsettled. You feel comfortable, complacent, jaded. He says, that's when the father starts crying. When the son is so foolish that he doesn't even realize that the hiding is hiding. The fact that he's hidden is even hidden. And he stops looking for godliness and stops talking about Mashiach and stops thinking about redemption and stops yearning for redemption and takes the status quo at face value that this is the best that it gets. And, we, and becomes comfortable in the darkness. That's the deepest, deepest level of hiding. So, Hashem is playing hide and seek with us. And He created a world where He's so hidden. It's such a cover-up. God is so covered up. But He wants us to search for Him. So at the same time, simultaneously, at the same time that He's creating us and sustaining us, and we're nothing other than the divine energy. And this divine energy is absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. 
and nothing changed. God permeates and God is here just like he was here alone before he created the world. The truth is nothing changed. God is alone after he created them. And at the same time, God is so hidden that they deny that there's even a source, that there's even a creator. God is not, simply not part of the language. This is the ultimate, ultimate miracle, a creative act of God. It's the ultimate proof that there's a God. It's much more impressive. When God hides, it's much more impressive than when God reveals himself. The ability to hide like this, only God has the ability to hide. Like some of our greatest leaders were hidden. The Baal Shem Tev, before he was revealed, before he was forced to reveal himself from heaven, for the first 36 years of his life, he was completely hidden. You see the light of the Baal Shem Tev for the last hundreds of years. Everything that you see today, all the whole Hasidic movement, the 3,600 Chabad houses, they're really Baal Shem Tev houses. So the, the fact that the Baal Shem Tev contained within himself so much light, such intense light, how was he able to hide it? He can't hide such intense light to pretend that he's a simple person. You see what power this Jew had, how much power he had. How could the Baal Shem Tev, how could he hide this light? The ability to be able to hide, totally conceal oneself, is a much greater expression of character. It comes from a much deeper place, much more intense place, than the ability, ability to reveal. So the fact that God is able to hide, totally conceal himself, means that God's presence in this world is so much more powerful, so much more intense than God's revelation in heaven. That's why according to Jewish tradition, this world is the holiest of all the worlds. God's presence is greater in this material world than in heaven. Unlike all other religions that emphasize the world to come, the other world, and they this world is like incidental or secondary or just a training ground for the next world. And Judaism is the reverse. This is the holiest of all the worlds. This is the most intense, the most powerful of all the worlds. This is the world in which we can affect, we can change, we can really matter and make a difference. Because this is where the essence of God, the essence of God is much more, is much more present in this world than the revelation of God in heaven. Because God's concealment comes from a much deeper place than God's revelation. And this world is a result of God's simsum. Not only the quantitative simsumim, the many numerous simsumim, but more importantly, the qualitative simsumim, the intensity of the simsumim, the total hiding and the total concealment. That until God is able to create the klipa and the other side and the impurity, the impurity, the impure are those who totally deny God. Totally deny God. Atheism. Total, to totally deny the existence of God, even the existence of God. Okay. And to receive their life in existence from the divine word and the breath of his mouth, through the concealment of his countenance, and through the downward gradations. Everything that exists in this world must receive its sustenance from God. Nothing could exist in this world without God. Otherwise it would cease to exist. So even the klipa, even the other side, and the klipa and the shell and the impurities also receive their sustenance from God. Otherwise it couldn't exist. And yet simultaneously at the same time that their entire sustenance is being received from God, at the same time they totally deny God. It's an absurdity. Your whole being, your whole existence, your being created and your whole coming into existence is... Only from the divine energy. There is not, not, nothing else. 
you're nothing other than the divine energy. And yet at the same time, you'd completely and totally deny God. For this reason, the klipot are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, for their nurture and vitality which they draw from the realm of holiness, since every existing being draws its life force from holiness, does not derive from the countenance, that is, the inner aspect of the divine will, but from the achoraim, the hinder part of holiness, that is, the external superficial aspect of the divine will. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain the terms countenance and hinder part as relating to the divine will. The explanation in brief, an inner will is a direct pleasurable yearning for the object of one's desire. An external will is one that is, as it were, forced, i.e. the object is desired only as a means to an end, the fulfillment of the inner will, and not as an end in itself. He's saying the reason why they're called other gods, it's referring to idolatry, is because the source, everything that exists has a divine source, has a divine life source, otherwise it would cease to exist. That's why Elohim, it's connected to the name Elohim, which is God's name. But they're called Elohim Acherim, other gods, because they receive their life sustenance from the back, so to speak, of God. There's the face, and then there's the back. What's the difference between the face and the back? When you love someone, you face them. You look them in the eye. When, you, when someone gives you pleasure, you look them in the eye. When you hate someone, you can't stand them. You can't bear to look at them. You turn, you turn your back. Let's say you must interact with them. You must give them. You have to do business with them. So you turn your back and you, you throw it back like you throw it behind you. I don't want to look at you. You disgust me. You're repulsed. But I have to do business with you. So here, go, take. But, there's, but when you love someone, you look at them, you look in their eyes, you smile to them, you give it wholeheartedly. So when you do something with love and you want it, and you desire it, then you, then you look at them in the face. When you hate them, then you, you turn your back to them. So in more, as Hasid, elsewhere, Hasidus explains in more detail and explains that really there are three levels. Here he discusses two levels, the front and the face, but really you have three levels. You have when a person really desires something. Let's say a person works. Why does a person work? Is it the work or is it the money? So for, for many people, not most people, it's the money. What you desire is the money. You're able to get the money without the work. We don't know how many people <laughs> show up to work. It's the work, it's the money that you really want. But in order to get the money, you have to work hard. You have to do a lot of things that you may not enjoy. It's not that you enjoy, but it's a means to an end. So what's the internal, what's the reason, the goal, the purpose? What motivates you? What motivates you that inner will and inner desires? Because you want money. Now, there could be many levels. A person that could be, money could mean many things to many people. For one person, it's just to have the money, you can live comfortably. So you can live as you please. Another person, it's to have the money. Money is status. I don't need the money. I already have enough money. It's, it's the status. For another person, it's the, because it'll give me power, whatever it is. But the person has a goal, something that they want, which motivates them, that excites them. That's the goal. That's what I want. In order to get there, I have to do a lot of things that I don't hate. 
but that's not the purpose. If I were able to get to the goal without <laughs> this, I would discard it in a minute. I don't need this. I'm just doing this because this is the means to the end. But I don't hate it. But it's external. It's secondary. It's a means to an end. So there's the end. That's where my pleasure is. Then there is, that motivates me to do many things that, that I need to do in order to get to what I really want. In order to get what I really want, I have to do all these secondary things, these means that will lead to the end. But then there is doing something that you hate. But you must do it. But you hate doing it. It gives you grief. You find, you find the person repulsive. You find it disgusting. But you have no choice. So you close, you hold your nose, and you take it, and you turn away, and you throw it. It says, here, this is for you. So too, with, so too, in relationship to God, you have three different levels. You have the purpose. What is the purpose of creation? What did God desire? What does God find pleasure in? What does God want? What gives God pleasure? What's the purpose? Being gives God pleasure? No. Existence gives God pleasure? No. It means nothing to God. It doesn't even exist. It means nothing. So what gives God pleasure? Life as an end in itself? Being existence? No, that doesn't give God pleasure. Even spiritual beings, that doesn't give God pleasure. The only purpose and the only thing that gives God pleasure is, and this is the whole purpose of creation, is when a Jew lives in this world and the Jew has to struggle with darkness, with negative tendencies, and a Jew has to overcome his limitation, and a Jew has to rise above his nature, and a Jew once chooses, deliberately and consciously and willingly chooses to have a relationship with God, to pray to God, to study His Torah, His wisdom, and to do His mitzvot, when a Jew is able to overcome his ego, and is able to overcome his nature, and is able to bring some godliness into this world, bring some light into this world, bring some holiness into this world, a little egolessness, a little selflessness, a little goodness into this world, goodness and kindness. This is the purpose of it. This is what gives God infinite pleasure. When a person takes money, the ultimate ego symbol, and he gives tzedakah with it, this gives God the greatest pleasure. There is no, nothing else that gives God more pleasure. An act of goodness and kindness. That's the purpose. In order to achieve this purpose, God created the whole world. In order to achieve this purpose, you need, a, you need real estate, you need a market, you need a Wall Street, you need money, you need a government, you need a world. And then when you live in this world and you operate in this world and then you take this world and you make it into a holy place, you do a mitzvah with it, and you take this world and you transform it into something holy, into something godly, that's the purpose, that's what gives God pleasure. But in order to fulfill that purpose, the entire world, the entire universe is a means to that end. The whole world, Bereshus, the entire world was created for the Jew and for Torah. That is the purpose, and the whole world is a means to that end. So it doesn't mean that God hates it. The world is nothing to hate. The world is a, is a secondary being, existence. The world is a means to an end. But then there is kalipa, impurity, which God hates. Egotism, arrogance, atheism. The denial of God. When a person worships his own mind. When a person worships himself. The this, this self-made man who denies God exists. When God is not even part of the equation. All there is is me, myself, and I. Idolatry. This God despises. 
But nevertheless, God creates and sustains. While he's worshipping idols, while he's in the total state of atheism and denial, God is sustaining and creating this, that whole world. Why? If God hates it, why? And, but God is like holding his nose, turning his back, and throwing that person life sustenance. Why is God giving life to sustenance? If God hates Because it's necessary. Why is that necessary? We'll learn in a minute. The meaning of hinder part is exemplified in the act of a person who gives something unwillingly to his enemy with an ulterior motive. He throws the object to him over his shoulder while he turns his face away from him out of his hatred for him. For one's bodily actions express the feelings of his soul. Thus, when the act of giving is motivated by an external will, the giver turns away his face, which is where the inner facets of one's soul express themselves. So, too, on high, the term countenance represents the inner quality of the supernal will and its true desire, namely the desire of God to dispense life to all who belong to the realm of holiness, who are close to him. But the sitra achra, and so to unholiness, is an abomination before God, which he hates. He does not give it life from his inner will and true desire as if he delighted in it, heaven forbid, but in the manner of one who unwillingly throws something over his shoulder to his enemy. This he does, not out of his inner will, but merely to punish the wicked who subjugate themselves to the klipot, and derive their power from them, and to grant a rich reward to the righteous who subdue the sitra achra. In order that there may be freedom of choice for one to be either righteous or wicked, the existence of the sitra achra is necessary, and for this reason God gives it life. One is to reward the righteous people. When a person has freedom of choice, and yet, a person chooses to do good when it's a difficult choice and it costs you. There's a price to that choice. You have to sacrifice. You have to give up something. And then you've earned that reward. And that's the greatest gift that God can give us. If God gives us something free on a silver platter, let's say if doing good was simple and easy, it's easy. We had no temptations. We had no distractions. The world around us was holy and genuine and godly and good. It sounds like the world we live in, right? And um, then it would be like on a silver platter. But you know, when you get something free, as the Zohar says, it's like a slap in the face. You feel you haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. If you, something is given to you free, it's cheap. You feel cheapened by it. In heaven, the soul, everything is given to the soul on a silver platter. It's a free gift. The soul hasn't earned it. That's why the soul comes into this world. A very dark world. Many temptations and tests. And you have freedom of choice. And people get away with murder. And yet you choose, not because you don't have a choice. You have a choice. And you could choose the opposite. And yet you choose to do the right thing. Not because you're a simpleton and you're innocent and therefore you don't know any better. No, you could do. You could have easily chosen the opposite. But you chose to do the right thing. It's your choice. Then it's a reward that you have earned. And that gives a person the deepest satisfaction. You feel that you own that reward. You earned that reward. You deserve that reward. Because you have chosen. It cost you. You paid a price for it. You had to sacrifice. It wasn't easy. There was a genuine effort involved. 
You've earned it at the end of the day. That's the greatest gift that God can give a person, is the, the feeling of, I've earned that reward. So that's the one reason why God holds his nose, so to speak, turns his back and throws and gives life force and sustenance to the klipa, to the sitra achra, to the atheists and to the idolaters and to the pagans and those who totally deny God's existence or totally cut God out of the picture. That's one reason. But the other reason he gives is to punish the wicked. What does it mean to punish the wicked? Why does God have to create a world of evil so there should be wicked people to punish. If he wouldn't have created the world, if he hates evil so much, then God shouldn't have created evil in the first place, and there wouldn't be anyone to punish. Why is that a reason to create, to hide himself so well, to conceal himself so well, and to turn his back and to throw a little life force, a little life sustenance to, to wickedness and to evil in order to punish the wicked? Where's the logic? And the answer is, one of the explanations is that everything that exists in this world really is rooted in godliness. We see that one of the most powerful forces in life is the desire to win. Competition. Competitiveness. A person wants to win. When there's heavy competition and yet you win. The ability to win. The desire to win. It's, It's one of the deepest pleasures that a person has. When there's a race and the better team wins. That's why everything in life is competition. Two teams. One team is going to lose and one team is going to win. And then the winning (coughs) means something. When the winning means something, when you defeat the enemy, when you win over the enemy, when there's a battle and there's a conflict and there's competition and you win and the enemy loses. If there's no loser, then the winning doesn't mean anything. It's when you win over the competition and you defeated the competition and you beat the competition and you won the war, you won the battle, that gives you the deepest pleasure. The kings would go to war, and they would, they would, governments, countries, would go to war, and spend the entire treasure. Even the hidden treasures, the, it's been stored in treasures for generations. They would go for broke, just to win. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. What is history going to remember? Who won? Who won World War II? Fascism was destroyed and defeated forever. And democracy won. Communism lost, democracy won. The only thing that matters at the end of the day is who won and who lost. And therefore the, the country, the government, will go for broke to win. And people have that competitive streak. They have that desire to win, to be on top, to be the number one. To... Because it comes from a very deep root within the soul. <coughs> a person gives a person tremendous pleasure. Where does this come from? Everything that exists in this world comes from the divine. So too, when goodness defeats evil, when the wicked, instead of the wicked prospering, when the wicked are punished and get their comeuppance and get what they deserve, and are punished. When evil and lies is defeated and receives their just rewards, then goodness and goodness triumphs. That's the deepest pleasure. When you see falsehood getting their, their comeuppance, when you see lies and deceit, yes, people get away with murder up until a point. 
But then there comes a point when the wicked are punished. When justice is done. There's, that touches a very deep place. When evil is defeated and goodness and truth wins, that touches a very deep place. And that's the purpose. And that's why God created the world. And that's why God created the world, a world where He's so concealed and so hidden that He holds His nose, so to speak, and throws some life sustenance to evil because evil serves a purpose. Evil has to be defeated. And then when goodness triumphs, there's meaning to that triumph. The righteous people earned their reward. And evil has been defeated. We've won. We can raise the flag. We won the war. If there's no competition, if the outcome is very clear, then, then there's no fun. The whole thrill of a game is when, when it's so close and we don't know who's going to win and, and it can go either way and everything is on the line. And, and then when the good team wins and the right team wins and the other one is defeated, that's so sweet. That's so meaningful and memorable. So God wanted to defeat evil. And that good, goodness should win in triumph. But the question remains, why does he have to mention that first? He says first, he says to punish the wicked. And then he says to reward the righteous. First he should have said to reward the righteous. And then to punish the wicked. Like it says in the beginning of chapter 5, in Ethics of Our Fathers, God could have created the world with one utterance. Why did He create the world with ten utterances? And again, there He says, to punish the wicked who destroy a world that was created with ten utterances and to give reward to the righteous who sustain a world that was created with ten utterances. There you have the same question. Why does He start with the negative? And the explanation there is, there in the Ethics of Our Fathers, He uses, He doesn't say here, He says, Lahanish, to punish. There He says, Lihipara. Lihipara means to punish, but lipara also means to pay back. Retribution. Retribution. But it also means lipara to pay back. <clears throat> like paying back a loan. Because the truth is that there is an energy. There is an energy within the klipa, within the wicked. A very powerful energy. As we find, the more alienated, the more distant something is from God, the coarser it is, the greater the energy. The greater the attraction. When something is very attractive, you've got to start suspecting <laughs> maybe it's not kosher, because something is kosher doesn't have such a powerful attraction. When something is a very powerful attraction, the less kosher it is, the more powerful the attraction. The drunkier it is, the more drunk food it is, the tastier it is. That's just the way it is. And the analogy is, the Kabbalah uses the analogy, if you take a wall, and when the wall falls down, the highest stone in the wall will fall the farthest away from its source. So to everything in this world, its source is God and godliness. There is no other source. Nothing else exists but God. So everything has a godly energy. But the farther it is, the further it fell away from its source, means it comes from a higher source, a very powerful source. So the energy within the Russia, that Bacchanalian energy, that wild, chaotic energy, that energy is a good energy. God wants that energy. So He doesn't want to destroy the Russia. It's not about destroying the Russia. As we say, the, the Russia should do teshuva. We don't want it to destroy the Russia. We want the Russia to do teshuva. We want the wicked person to repent and to acknowledge God. 
We wanted Russia to pay back all that energy, all that negative energy that he expended in negativity, in evil. He should take that energy itself and reconnect it back to the source. Bring it back home. Bring those sparks back home. Because the purpose is to use that energy. God wants that intense energy, that powerful energy. But take all that energy that's been spilled and that's been wasted on materialism, those raw, uninhibited passions where a person just let loose and let go without any inhibitions, without any restraints, without any discipline. Hashem wants to take that energy and bring it back home where it belongs. That you're studying of Torah, you're doing of mitzvot, and your relationship to God with me, with the same passion, the same passion that that person is running to Las Vegas, you take that passion and run to Shul. <coughs> the purpose is not just to destroy the Russia, to destroy the wicked, and everyone will become like, like robots and, and docile and, and sweet and nice. And listen, Hashem wants to take that turbulence, take that darkness and that turbulence, that powerful, raw, bacchanalian energy. Take it and bring it home. Uh, sublimate it. And, tr- and uh, harness them to godliness. That's why he says to pay back. The Russia has to pay back. Not to destroy the Russia, but to, the Russia has to pay back for all the good times that he had and all the negative experiences that he had. He has to take all that energy and bring it back home. That's why in Ethics of Our Father, he starts out with the Russia. That's the purpose of creation purpose of creation is that everything should come back home to God. Everything should be reconnected with God. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything.